All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Hebrews. In this recording, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And to set that in context, the author here in chapter 12 is continuing his final collection of exhortations or calls to action. What he's been doing, beginning at the end of chapter 10 and continuing on to the end of the book, is based on all the explanation he provided about who the Son is and what the Son has accomplished as the great high priest over the household of God, the author of Hebrews then culminates this book with a series of exhortations, a series of calls to action. And the heart of it all is to faithfully endure as followers of Jesus the Messiah. That began in force in chapter 11. There, in that chapter, he presented example after example of faithful people from the past. And these examples stand as testimonies to the life of faith and faithfulness. Now, here in chapter 12, 1 through 17, the author makes explicit the point of those examples. Their example both encourages and challenges us to imitate their faith and faithfulness. So, using the imagery of a stadium and a racetrack, that's the picture you need to have in your mind as we enter into this chapter, a stadium and a racetrack, which was very popular in the ancient world. You can Google and find all sorts of pictures of uh, such stadiums and racetracks. Um, Using that kind of imagery, the author writes this, picking up in 12 verse 1. Therefore, pointing back to chapter 11, drawing out the point and the implication from the list of the faithful people in the past, therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Who's the great cloud of witnesses? Well, it's the faithful people from chapter 11. In fact, in classical usage, the word cloud was sometimes used in context like this for a large crowd. And so that's what we have. We have this crowd or cloud of witnesses. And the author here is going to go on to picture a stadium and Christians running the race of faith. So one way to imagine what he's saying about this cloud of witnesses is that All those faithful that he mentioned in chapter 11 and others that we want to think of now down to our time, all those faithful people are like the crowd in the stadium cheering us on to be faithful. And that's part of it, but that's not the full story that he's making. It's also just a little bit more than that. It's not just that they are spectators cheering us on. They've already run the race of faith. And they've already completed and been faithful. So it's not just that they're spectators. They're also examples of faithfulness. The word witness, cloud of witnesses, that word witness is from the exact same root as the word that's translated gained approval or gained commendation or were commended in chapter 11. There in chapter 11, the idea was that they received a witness of their faithfulness. It was testified about them through the record of Scripture that they were faithful. Well, they now stand not merely as spectators, but also as signposts and examples of trusting God and his promises faithfully, clear to the end, through the whole race. So that's the cloud of witnesses. And so with that great crowd of faithful examples surrounding us, he says... Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. 
Runners, then and now, strive to be as streamlined and lightweight as possible so as to increase their speed and their effectiveness. In the Greek world of um, the original author, they often raced like virtually naked because there was no lightweight spandex running suits back in those days. And so to be streamlined and lightweight, let's just get rid of everything. Well, that's the imagery he's playing off of here. So he says, rid ourselves. That's set aside. And he says, rid ourselves of every obstacle. Uh, the word obstacle, ankas, refers to weight or mass or heaviness. It even was used of like body fat. Uh, the picture, say, of a marathon, a marathon runner who's trim and sleek and wearing lightweight clothing. That's the imagery. Um, the idea of the imagery is removing all impediments and anything that would make it hard to complete the race of faith. Get rid of that. Get rid of the dead weight that's going to slow you down or drag you down as you seek to be faithful to Jesus. And so let's uh, rid ourselves of every obstacle and, he says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. So rid ourselves of every obstacle, rid ourselves of the sin. Whereas the obstacles and the weights were uh, more neutral things, things that would impede faithfulness, but they weren't necessarily wrong. Here, now we're being real specific about also things that are wrong, sin. Get rid of that too. And notice that it's the sin that so easily entangles us. Um, this is actually the only place this phrase is used in the New Testament. And so it's not 100% clear. The, the word entangled has the idea of either cling to or trips you up, entangles you. And that's the idea here that somehow it wraps around you and impedes your movement and thus keeps you from running your race faithfully. So the point is avoid any obstacle and all the sin which is going to hinder your life of faithfulness. And all of that is preparatory for the main statement. Get rid of all that stuff that makes it hard to run a good race. Now we get the main clause of the last little bit of verse 1 where he says, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a, a command. This is a call to action. We must run with endurance, like with perseverance. We, gotta, we can't quit. We can't just say, I'm done and tossing the towel. We got to endure to the end. And so run with endurance the race that is set before us, that is marked out before us. The, the race course is lined out. There's the race. We've got to endure it and we've got to stick with it. And as you run, what should you focus on? Well, look at verse two. Run with endurance, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter of the faith. Um, looking at doesn't mean just a casual, occasional glance at. It's focusing on. It's fixing your gaze on. And so as you run this race, fix your gaze on Jesus. And he's not just one example among many. He is the ultimate example of faith and faithfulness. He's the originator and perfecter of the faith. That is the founder and the completer. Uh, the faith begins and ends with Jesus. The word translated originator in this translation is rich with meaning. It means initiator or leader or forerunner. Sometimes it was, it was even translated champion, right? Like he's the champion of the faith. He's the one who brought the faith. He perfected. He brought it to its intended goal and purpose. And so he is the ultimate example of faith and faithfulness who brought the faith to its intended goal. And so with that, then the author goes on to describe Jesus and his faithfulness. So fixing your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross. You need to endure your race just like Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so just like the author of Hebrews has been calling the original readers to uh, be faithful to the end and to endure, just like the examples of faith in chapter 11, Jesus is an example of a person who endured his race because he had a forward-looking vision. He looked ahead to see the heavenly reward beyond the earthly difficulty and suffering. So because he looked ahead, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Crucifixion was not only a horrific way to die physically, it was the most disgraceful and shameful way to die in the Roman Empire. It involved torture and public humiliation, and it was reserved for slaves and criminals of the lowest kind. So when it says that he despised the shame, what it means is he despised the shame of the cross. There was, there was, uh, there was a, a wealth of shame associated with crucifixion. And the word translated despise means to treat uh, something or someone as if it's of little value. So Jesus looked at the shame of the cross and basically was like, compared to what it's going to achieve and compared to the reward that is to come, that shame is of little consequence to me. That's the idea. In view of the joy that was set before him and in view of the reward that was to come, Jesus treated the humiliation and disgrace and shame of the cross as of little consequence. And so now he reigns as king, seated alongside God at his right hand on his throne. Now, based on the example of Jesus, then the author of Hebrews takes this and makes a direct appeal to his readers. He says in verse three, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is really restating the idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus, but now using the word consider, which means to think on, to ponder, to fill your mind with, to carefully deliberate on. And so as you fix your mind on your eyes on Jesus, think about it. Think about what it means. Think about what he went through and fill your mind with that, all with the goal so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Then, in verses 4 and following, the author shifts to offering some fresh perspective on their hardships and on their suffering to help them not lose heart, to help them endure and be faithful. So, it's not just that he calls them to this. He actually offers a new way of looking at uh, their sufferings and their difficulties, beginning in verse 4. So, he says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Notice that sin here is presented as the great opponent. It's not just sin in ourselves, it's sin in the world, sin in the world's system, sin in the world's ambitions and temptations. And when you resist that and you oppose that, suffering often follows. It's not always easy, even if it's just an uphill battle, but sometimes people actually get hostile. And the original readers were experiencing some of that hostility. And so the author has already encouraged his listeners by acknowledging that they've, they've suffered a great deal. Think back to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. But even though they've suffered a great deal, they're not being killed for it like other people have or like Jesus himself was. Then he reminds them of what scripture teaches about suffering and about God and about them as sons and daughters of God to really help them have a fresh perspective. So look at verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons or children. My son... 
Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are punished by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son he accepts. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And this really provides fresh perspective on their sufferings. How should you think about your sufferings? Well, they're disciplined from the Lord to help you grow. They don't mean that the Lord doesn't care. They mean the exact opposite, in fact, that he cares so much, he's using this as an opportunity to help you grow. Uh, Just a couple things to note from this quote uh, before we look at the point the author makes out of it. The first is, it's addressed to my son, or you could translate that, my child. And you need to hear it with the tone of a gentle, loving, devoted father. My son, my child. Um, And he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The idea of regard lightly is to make light of. Don't like, don't treat the the Lord's discipline as if it's no big deal or to just kind of say, ah, blow it off, right? Don't make light of it. And the word translated discipline there, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We typically hear the word discipline, at least in English, and think in terms of punishment. But this word translated discipline is actually paideia in Greek, which is a more holistic term for training and developing, not used exclusively or even primarily for correction and punishment. It can include that because that could be part of your training and your developing, but it's that whole big thing. So think in terms of training and developing, not just um, correction and punishment. He'll mention punishment in the next line when he says, nor faint when you're punished by him. And it's important to notice that word faint. It's actually from the same word that's translated lose heart in verse 3. That's the point of connection with this passage from Proverbs 3. Faint, lose heart. This is what the author of Hebrews is wanting to make sure the readers don't do. They don't lose heart. They don't faint. They don't give up. That's how this uh, quote was suggested to him was that word faint. Um, And so he says, don't faint when you're punished by him, which means to be reproved or to be corrected. Um, It's actually a different word that's translated punished in verse 6. Notice you have punished by him in verse 5, but then you have punished again in verse 6. And it's actually two different words in those verses. Verse 5 means reproved or corrected. Like, let me correct your thinking. Let me help you see things differently. Verse 6 is more what we think of as punishment, consequences in order to change your behavior. So he mentions both of those, correction and punishment, but that's only a part of the process of training. And so all this suffering you should think of as training, as correction and punishment. Well, does that mean that God doesn't love you, that God somehow rejects you? Well, no, not at all. It actually means the opposite. Every son and every daughter whom God loves, those are the ones that he actually corrects and actually trains and actually disciplines. And so in verse 7, the author of Hebrews gives some exposition and application from this passage. He says, it's for discipline that you endure. So think about it that way. The sufferings and the hardship you're going through, that's for training and discipline to help you learn and to help you grow and become the person God wants you to be. God deals with you, he says, as with sons, as with his children, as with sons and daughters. For what son, what daughter, what child is there whom his father does not discipline? Like any loving, faithful father, um, 
Any father that values their children will discipline them and teach them and train them and correct them to help them grow and become the people that they're meant to be. Well, that's what God's doing by virtue of the difficulties and the hardships that the original readers were experiencing and that, that the faithful have experienced all throughout uh, the history of God's people. In fact, he says in verse 8, if you're without discipline, that's when it proves that you don't really belong to God. If you're without discipline, of which all of us have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons, right? Like if, if there is no discipline, then that, that's actually evidence that you don't belong to the Father. He doesn't care enough uh, to train you and to teach you. Well, that means you're really not his, right? That's the idea. But discipline means you belong to him, that he loves you. And he goes on in verse 9 to continue carrying out this imagery. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them for it. Like that's, we appreciate the fact they taught us and they trained us, particularly as we got older and we looked back, right? We respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? If our earthly fathers disciplined us and we recognize the benefit of it, what do you think about your heavenly father? This phrase translated father of spirits, it's unique to this passage. It's actually led some to kind of come up with some pretty novel and exotic ideas about the origin of the spiritual side of our natures. I think that's reading way too much in the phrase. It simply stands in contrast to earthly fathers. We had earthly fathers, literally fathers of flesh, and then there's the father of spirits. That's what we're talking about. It's just another way to say heavenly father. And so our earthly fathers disciplined us. We saw the benefit. What about our heavenly father? What's more, the discipline of our heavenly father, God, it's actually wiser and better for us than our earthly fathers. Look at verse 10. For they, that is our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Um, and so his discipline is wiser and better. And notice the goal, to share in, participate in, to partake of his very own holiness. We want to become like him and be partakers of his divine nature, as Peter says in 1 Peter. And so his discipline is wiser and better, and that's what he's aiming at through the sufferings we endure and the difficulties we undergo. He wants to use that to help us share in his holiness. It's not always easy. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful. True, right? It's not always pleasant to be taught, trained, disciplined to undergo difficulty. It doesn't seem to be pleasant. And yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All of this is providing a fresh perspective on their sufferings and the difficulty of living faithfully. Um, they need to think of this as, even though it's hard, as providing training and instruction and correction so that we can be holy and share in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the author of Hebrews has explained this to them because he wants them to receive it this way, to experience their suffering this way, and to think about it this way so that they won't lose heart. So what he does now, beginning in verse 12, is he calls them to help each other out on this, to help each other not lose heart and be faithful. And so he says, therefore, Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. 
Here, the author of Hebrews alludes to Isaiah 35, verses 3 and following, which says this, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And that passage from Isaiah 35 certainly fits the context here. Be strong, stay faithful, wait for God to set things right, and he'll sort it all out, so you just trust him. And the exhortation here in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 is to the community of faith, calling them to help each other to remain faithful. And interestingly, that passage there in Isaiah 35 actually goes on to describe the second exodus, the exodus that would be accomplished when Messiah comes and God begins to sort things new. And it pictures a highway of holiness through the desert and then the faithful people walking on it. Well, that, that imagery there from Isaiah 35 may actually be what leads the author of Hebrews to mention making straight paths. And it may also be what leads him to mention holiness in the next few verses. Look at verses 14 through 16. Those verses all go together as one long sentence. And it says this, pursue peace with all people. Like do your best to live in harmony with all people and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That we as the faithful have to walk on that highway of holiness that's mentioned in Isaiah 35. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. This verse here in verse 15 is actually grammatically connected to verse 14. Remember, 14 through 16 is technically one long sentence in Greek. So how is it connected? Well, that phrase at the beginning of verse 15 that's translated here as see to it is actually a participle. And so he's just called uh, the original readers in verse 14 to pursue peace and to pursue holiness. Well, this now says, seeing to it that no one comes up short. That's how a participle functions. And so it's telling how we're to see to it. How are they supposed to see to it that no one comes up short? Well, they do that by pursuing peace and by pursuing holiness. So pursue peace with all people. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord seeing to it, making sure that no one comes up short of the grace of God. And then in what follows are two more components to that. It kind of works like this. Pursue peace and holiness, making sure no one comes up short of the grace of God. And here's two things to avoid. First, avoid this. Avoid that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That's the first thing to avoid. That root of bitterness uh, seems somewhat parallel to peace by describing what will ruin the peace and harmony in the community of faith and with others. Bitterness, like a small weed uh, that, that starts out small but then spreads throughout the whole garden, it'll destroy the community of faith if there's bitterness. Uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 29 verses 18 through 19 that uses similar imagery. Some actually see the author of Hebrews as alluding to that passage from Deuteronomy 29. There in Deuteronomy 29, the bitter root is somebody who falls away from God and serves idols. Now, whether the author here in Hebrews is directly alluding to it or not, it does show how this concept was used and helps us maybe understand what he's getting at. Like, make sure no one falls away from the faith and changes teams, and then that actually leads others to do the same sort of thing, and other people become defiled. So that's the first thing to avoid. The second thing in verse 16 is, second, be sure that there, there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau, 
who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Alluding to the story from Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 and following, which seems parallel to holiness. So bitter root seems to be something that destroys the peace. Here, this seems to be something that undermines holiness. So pursue holiness and don't be like Esau, seems to be the idea. Don't let there be anybody who's sexually immoral, uh, any sort of illicit sexual behavior or activity, or godless. Godless is the idea of with no reverence and honor for God. Don't let there be anyone like that within your community of faith who is so driven by their own desires that they'd even sell their own birthright for a meal. And then verse 17 just reflects on the story of Esau a bit uh, and the kind of the consequences and outcome for him. So verse 17 says, For you know that even afterward, when he, Esau, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. There was no way to go back and get the blessing. No way to go back and reclaim his birthright because he sold that thing for a single meal. And once again, the author of Hebrews is implying that only tears and rejection await those who sell out to the world rather than be faithful to Christ to the end. That's the implied exhortation there from reflecting on the story of Esau. So, here in chapter 12, 1 through 17, the author of Hebrews has called the original readers, and by extension us, to run the race of faith with endurance, clear to the end. Um, Get rid of the stuff that's going to trip you up and make it hard to run that race of faith. Uh, Look at your difficulties as a form of training to get you in shape and to help you be strong so that you can be faithful to the end. Uh, encourage one another in this. You can't do this alone. And so as a community of faith, work together in this and make sure there's there's not things inside the community like people changing teams and rejecting the faith or people who are immoral or godless. Get rid of that sort of stuff too so that you can all together encourage each other to be faithful just like those saints that are listed off in Hebrews chapter 11. And there's all sorts of important and helpful things for us to reflect on in this section. Obviously, thinking of our hardships and our difficulties as a form of training, you know, resistance training to help us get strong so we can run well and be faithful to the end. Man, that's helpful to us. Uh, the appeal to run the race uh, with uh, endurance. But if you, if you tie all of this together, it reminds us that faithfulness requires effort. It doesn't happen on accident. It's not always comfortable and easy. Faithfulness takes effort. And it's important for us to remember, as Dallas Willard was famous for saying, that grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Um, That when we say we're saved by grace, that doesn't mean that we can just coast, that there's no effort involved. No, what it means is grace is actually going to give us the strength and what we need to put forth the appropriate effort if we'll present ourselves to God. And so faithfulness to Jesus, running the race faithfully, actually is going to take effort and it's going to take determination and it's going to take a willingness to submit to difficulty and hardship for the sake of training. Faithfulness requires effort.